0: Welcome to another episode of the Elevate Orthodontics podcast. I'm Dr. Lance Meller, and each week it seems like I'm bringing you guys sports updates. I don't know that it's going to be like this all year long, but it's been an exciting time of year for me. I'm recording this on April 2nd, and as of today, my University of North Carolina Tar Heels are still alive in the men's basketball tournament that's going on here in the United States. We played Eh, not that great last night versus Oregon, but still won. Hopefully, we'll play a little bit better tomorrow night versus Gonzaga. And by the time this gets sent out to all of you guys on Tuesday morning, we'll be celebrating another national championship. I love how I use the word we in there, like I'm part of the championship team. I suppose that's the beauty of sports. I've got a great guest for you today, Dr. Christian Groth. He's an expert on all things digital and orthodontics, and we're going to talk about intraoral scanners, 3D printing, in-office aligner systems, really all things digital and that whole workflow, Christian just has an amazing grasp on. So you're going to love this interview and you're going to learn a lot. I know that I certainly did. As is our custom, I have a short thought of the week for you and then we'll get going with the interview. Let's dive right in and do it. One of the most difficult things about being a new orthodontist is the staggering number of mistakes you make. Unless you're a raging egomaniac or totally clueless, you'll find you're screwing up on an almost constant basis. I can remember my first few months as an associate and my first few years as an owner. The parade of errors was unrelenting and varied from clinical to management to personal. Forgot to explicitly tell the assistant that yes, we are continuing the upper power chain with those class two elastics. Botch the explanation of IPR to mom. Now she thinks I'm a butcher who wants to grind away her kid's teeth. Gave a staff member a hard time, only to find out later they in fact had a medical condition I was not yet aware of. Told my financial person to be more aggressive with an overdue account, and ended up with a bad review online. Allowed our staff meeting to descend into a vortex of complaining and negativity. The list goes on and on and on. The frustrating thing is that as orthodontists, we think we're the best and brightest. Decades of educational winnowing have convinced us that we're the bee's knees. At the very least, the simple fact that we've gone to so much school must surely count for something. In the presence of so much congratulatory self-talk, all of these mistakes seem particularly jarring. I've spoken with many orthodontists who have felt overwhelmed, frustrated, and even close to tears at the end of some days. How can we reconcile the fact that we have all the best training and all of the best intentions, and yet can't seem to string together an entire day without failing at something? Beating ourselves up doesn't help, But on the other hand, we obviously can't ignore our mistakes because we desperately need to learn from them. Over time, I developed a very simple and effective way to deal with and learn from my mistakes. First, when I felt frustrated or upset with something that had gone wrong, I tried as hard as I could to see how I had contributed to the situation. When I was honest with myself, I found that most often I was at least partly and more often mostly to blame. If you have a hard time with self-assessment, I would encourage you to read the book Extreme Ownership by Jocko Wilnick and Leif Babin, which I reviewed in an earlier podcast. The second step was that after I had recognized my mistake and taken responsibility for it, I would repeat the following phrase in my head, I'm not going to make that mistake again. Instead of unproductive moping, I turned my error into a learning experience by simply stating, I'm not going to make that mistake again. Sometimes, I still felt like an idiot and wanted to beat myself up, so I would remove judgment from the situation by telling myself, I'm not going to make that mistake again. This simple little mantra wasn't just to make me feel better. I really meant it. I would focus my mind on all of the little details that contributed to my mistake. I would literally visualize myself back in the middle of the problem situation. I could see myself in the clinic. I could see the patient. I could see mom sitting there on the bench with that look on her face. I could see the patient's teeth. I did all of this to be sure I would recognize the same set of circumstances when they presented themselves in the future. This really works. Because of the nature of our work, I often find myself back in the exact same sticky situation a few weeks or months or years later. Like a quarterback seeing the game slow down, I realize that I've been here before, and I know where the landmines are buried— and I say triumphantly to myself, I'm not going to make that mistake again. I know you're trying your best. There's so much to learn. Stop beating yourself up and be grateful for the opportunities you have every day to become a better orthodontist and a better person. Whether you're a new or seasoned doctor, I hope my little mantra can help you. <music> Dr. Christian Groth was born and raised outside of Detroit, Michigan. After graduating from Emory University, he spent seven years in Ann Arbor, Michigan, completing his dental and orthodontic training. As an early adopter of emerging technologies, I love, Christian, that you have this, the failed Sony mini-disc, I had a mini-disc player, Palm Pilot, first-generation iPod and iPhone among the many, he was lucky enough to join a practice, TDR Orthodontics, that has been on the cutting edge of orthodontic treatment for the better part of two decades. Having a group practice has allowed TDR to evaluate, test, and implement many technologies that may be too scary for a single provider. Uh, TDR is a large Invisalign practice, has consistently been the largest user of SureSmile in the world over the last 10 years, and owns and operates a digital orthodontic and 3D printing lab called Motor City LabWorks. A published author, Dr. Groth's articles have appeared in the Journal of Clinical Orthodontics and the Progressive Orthodontist. He is a frequent speaker on the benefits of 3D technology in orthodontics, including a presentation at the most recent AAO midwinter meeting. He's married with two children. I recently visited his office and was amazed by the beautiful physical facility and the mastery of digital technology on display welcome to the podcast dr grove thanks for being here
1: well thank you lance uh, i'm excited to uh to be on the, sh- the podcast here um the mini disc i'll say was uh it was ahead of its time it just i, I wish it had come through the mini disc was ahead of its time and then the ipod came out and it killed it
0: yeah no one knows what the mini disc was it's like no, it totally was... totally forgotten by history
1: It was a wonderful thing that a a high school and college kid could use and not destroy their music. You know, my problem with CDs is I was always throwing them around and they get scratched and they're no longer useful.
0: Yeah, yeah. So tell us a little bit about your journey since finishing your orthodontic residency. How did you hook up with this practice? It seems to match your technology tendency so well.
1: Yeah so I got really lucky in the sense that um I'm practicing in my hometown. I live a mile from my parents and I'm 10 minutes from our largest office and 20 minutes from the other offices that we operate. And um Dr. Tyler uh, I've known him, Scott Tyler, for many, many years. Uh, His—I was a swimmer all through high school and college, and his kids were all swimmers. He was actually uh, a phenomenal swimmer. He actually—he still has a couple of national records for uh, for masters swimming. And uh, I kept in touch with him through dental school and through residency. And for a moment, I didn't think it was going to work out. They hired a, a, a guy out of um, University of Detroit, and he was a wonderful guy. But he was from Ohio, and we don't hold that against him. But his <laughs> wife, uh, his wife wanted to go back home. And it just the timing worked out perfectly for me to join this great practice. Uh, I was the fourth uh, doctor in the practice, um, and eventually partnership came in, and so. It appealed to me because I, I knew about them. It was, I selfishly used their practice for my, my research, uh, my master's research. Uh, my dad is a dentist. My uncle's a dentist. And they've been working with uh, the TDR guys for many, many years. And so uh, I got to know them really well during my last year of residency when I was going back and forth between the offices. And it allowed them to get to know me and me to get to know them. And when the opportunity arose, my wife and I, we, we sat down and pounced on it because we knew it was something we couldn't pass up.
0: Yeah, that's that's awesome. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your partnership? I don't know the numbers, but I would imagine that there's probably more solo docs and associates out there by far compared to partnerships. So what what is it like being in a partnership?
1: So the, uh, the partnerships are really interesting. Uh, yeah, most of the people I know are, are solo or, or they've got a partnership where it's one other person and they, they, they see their own patients. Uh, they share space. They split overhead, but it's it's not – uh, it's not a true partnership. Uh, we've got four partners, an associate, um, Dr. Reem Halal out of Detroit who joined us a couple years ago. Uh, and it's fantastic to have a woman on the team. Um, and We share patients for the most part. It's, uh, the, the beauty of it to us is that it allows us to split expenses four ways so we can afford some things that maybe any one of us alone couldn't afford. It also allows us to tailor schedules to who wants to work when and where. Um, and if someone wants to go on vacation, the office doesn't shut down like you, it happens when you're in a, a single practice. So we have very few times where the office is closed down. Uh, that is sometimes an issue for our staff. Uh, it, it's easy for us to take a week off and someone else comes in and covers for us. The staff doesn't get that off, so we try to take time of, times in the year where we shut down completely in order to get the staff uh, some much needed rest. Uh, but For us, we are really nice in that we complement each other very, very well. We're four very different personalities and I think we all understand that uh, each of us has their own wheelhouse and we default to the person for any given issue that comes up that would be best suited to lead the problem. Uh, for example, uh, Scott, the, uh, the, the oldest uh, doctor in the practice, he's, a, he's kind of the entrepreneur of the group, uh, so he's always looking at new opportunities. Uh, and so if we have an idea, he's sometimes the one who will take it and say, you know what, I got this, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with this. Whereas John, who is a second partner in the group, he's a little more systems oriented, uh, you know, very technologically savvy. Uh, he's done all the networking in the office. And so if there's a problem that involves computers, generally John's the guy that jumps up and says, I'm going to take care of this.
0: Yeah. How do you make decisions in a, in a in a partnership like that or or like how if you're comfortable talking about it do you divide up the pay of the doctors, you know, and you, you alluded a little bit to sharing patients. I'm I'm just kind of curious here.
1: Yeah, so um decision making we meet monthly. We've got I have a monthly partner meeting where it's the four of us and our practice manager and we go over all sorts of issues. We have a, a kind of a standing agenda and uh A week before we email, um, Brian Reyes is the one that puts the agenda together. So we we email him and we say, all right, here's what I'd like to discuss. And we all understand that there are compromises. A partnership is exactly like a marriage. And there are times where you've got to sit there and swallow your pride and say, you know what? It's not the way I would do it, but everyone else likes this idea. Let's give it a whirl and let's do the experiment. Uh, We had a really good CE course a couple years ago. By a software engineer out of Ann Arbor who um, is is kind of known for doing things outside the box, and his his favorite phrase is "Let's try the experiment." So any he really says doesn't say no to anything. Someone wanted to bring their dog into work because uh, the dog wasn't feeling well. He said, "Let's try the experiment." Someone had a baby and didn't have daycare. He said, "Bring him in. Let's try the experiment." So they have dogs and kids running around the office now, um, and it's what they're known for. And so. A lot of us in the group here say, you know what, let's give it a whirl. If it doesn't work, we can always reconvene and see why it didn't work and let's change it based on what we learned.
0: Yeah. Yeah
1: pay-wise, um, we all have set salaries, and it's part of our, we all have an employment agreement with the, the practice, so we're all employees of the practice, um, and so we all have a salary, and it's, uh, it's based on ownership and, and years experience and all things like that, and at the end of the year, we have a, you know, we divvy up the, uh, you know, the profits at the end of the year, and that's all based on ownership percentage, so I'm in the, the latter stages of my buy-in, so that we'll all be equal partners uh, when I'm done in a couple years, and then things will change a little bit because um, then all four of us will be uh, perfectly equal.
0: How would someone know if they're a, the right fit to be in a partnership, or if that's just not for them? Like, what would what kind of personalities would you think is good or not?
1: You know, I think that most people, uh, if you really sit down and think about yourself, you you should know if you want to work with someone else. Um, I, I, one nice thing about these online groups is you kind of get to know some of these personalities and I, I, you get a sense for if this person would be good to work in a group or they like to do their own thing. Uh, and I've always been a group kind of guy. I liked working in a group in school and I, I felt that you bring everyone's resources together and you put three or four minds together and you come out with a better product than if you just tried to do it on your own. So I, I never wanted to do this on my own. I, the whole time I was thinking, okay, I'm going to join a group. I'm going to, you know, one of my buddies, we're going to set up a practice together and, and we're going to uh, do it as a duo or find three or four people to work together. Um, I know a lot of people that never had that intention. They know that they don't work well in groups, and they don't they don't want to share that w- with other people. So for us, we have gone through a process where we've worked with a, a, basically a business coach, and uh, we started that about f- six years ago. And so any major decisions and any major hiring uh, decisions, we actually put people through a personality test. Um, you know, the most common one is the MBTI. Uh, mm-hmm. Where we have them sit down with uh, with Barry, and he comes back to us, and he says, "This is yes, the person that you want in this role, or no, there's some major red flags here. This is not the kind of person that you want to be the face of your practice." So I sat down with uh, with someone for about three hours during my interview process, if you will, and he put me through the ringer and uh, reported back to them. And I assume it was all good things because I got the job.
0: <laughs> That's really interesting. Okay. Well, thanks for telling us a little bit about that. I think partnerships are, you know, for those of us that aren't in them, I think they're a little bit uh, unknown. So thanks for taking a minute with that. Uh, I invited you mainly on the show uh, to talk about technology and orthodontics. I want to start kind of with a 30,000 foot view here. When, When you're contemplating a technology or something to implement in your practice, what are the considerations that you're taking into account? And is is this usually a problem in need of a solution or sometimes is it really a solution that's kind of looking for a problem?
1: I think it can go both ways. Um, You know, when we're looking at technologies and we look through all of our technologies in the lens of, is it going to make my final product better? Is it going to make my patient experience better? Is it going to make my experience better? Because we have a lot of technologies that – and everyone uses things that make their life better, but it costs more money in order to do it. Uh, And it's, it's picking and choosing for any given technology what we're willing to pay to decrease our amount of time sitting at the chair, decrease our amount of time sitting on a computer doing treatment plans. You can sit there, you could set up a practice with no practice management software, with uh, zero, zero brackets, bending 14-inch stainless steel wires with a turret. and be very efficient, but is that necessarily the way that we want to run our practice? And so we look at things and say, you know, this is a very cool technology, but it's a lot of money, and it's not really solved. You know, we don't have a problem with what it solves. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we have an issue, and we say all right, what's out there to solve this problem? And so it just depends on on what we do. And and John and I always go to the AAO meeting and we look around the exhibit hall and we see all these really cool things and we bring back a lot of information. And and a lot of times we just look at it and say, yeah, it's really interesting, but it's not worth the the money that we're gonna spend to implement that.
0: Right, yeah, it's a tricky balance. I mean, obviously no one wants to, well, I shouldn't say no one, but most people aren't riding their bike to the office like you say, or uh, you know, bending 14 inch wires. Um, but you know, there, there is this, this balance of, of trying to, to do things. It seems that in 2017, the, the hottest thing is intraoral scanning. It's interesting. I think back when I was in residency in 2008, it was mini screws, all mini screws all the time. And man, we just wanted to screw in as many mini screws as we could on everyone. And that just made <laughs> us feel so cool. And now it seems like we've reached almost the similar frenzy level with scanners. Why do you think that is kind of happening now?
1: I think a lot of people see scanners as uh, an ability with the ability to increase their efficiency, and it's again, it's another one of those technologies that you're going to pay more money if when you're using a scanner. There's no doubt about that. You're spending anywhere from fifteen to forty thousand dollars on this piece of equipment, and there's no way that you can really make the argument that, yes, this is going to save me money in the long run, because any appliance made with a scanner is going to cost you more money than an appliance made from a, a, a alginate impression in a stone model, because you have printing costs. And so th- this this illusion that I'm going to buy a scanner and it's going to save me money, I, I think it's not true. But... Uh, it's a sexy part of your practice. It's a really nice thing to market. People like the, to come in and hear that, no, we don't take impressions anymore. Uh, you don't have to deal with the gagging. And the parents, they love it because that's what they remember as a kid is that goopy stuff that they're gagging on and the assistant saying, breathe through your nose, you're going to be fine. And they're trying to choke back throwing up their breakfast. And so there are efficiencies that scanners introduce, which I think were similar to the efficiencies with the TADs, you know, the, the craze years ago that you're going to put TADs in and you're going to be able to protract and intrude and do these things that you can't do with fixed appliances alone. And that's true. Um, you know, our practice, we, I can't, I don't know the last time we used a TAD. It just, it's something that we, we just don't do. Um, but there are a lot of people that are doing it very, very well and it allows them to do things that I probably can't do. Nearly as efficiently as they can do with a tad. Um, so I think that's one of the, the reasons why scanners are, are really um, exciting. They've also become a lot more user friendly. When you look back at the the scanners of old, the original Itero uh, and the or the SureSmile Aura scanner from 10 years ago, they're clunky. They were expensive. They blew air. They were, they were very technique sensitive or they had powder involved with them. So they're becoming much more user-friendly. They're coming becoming faster. So you can use one scanner on a lot of patients throughout the day and make your patient experience better.
0: It does seem like that's kind of confluence of factors that have come together here. You mentioned price and, and I'm curious, you know, maybe you can break down for our listeners. If someone's considering this, what are the different costs? Because the kind of cost Come in, in different ways when when you think about implementing a scanner in your practice.
1: Cost is something that's very interesting because very rarely are you going to get a true cost of a scanner. You're going to go to the AAO this year in San Diego and you're going to look at uh, the three shaped trio, the the uh, Itero, the Carestream CS3600, and you're going to get the the base cost of that scanner. And um, you know, let's for example, let's use the 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 two most popular ones right now, which are the Itero uh, Element and the Trios from 3Shape, and the, the base price of a monocolor 3Shape Trios scanner is somewhere around $25,000. The base price of the iTero element is going to be somewhere around $30,000, within a $100 or so. Right. And the issue that you don't see and a lot of people don't gather is the ongoing expenses of the scanner, in the sense that you've got yearly software fees with both of them, one is you know more than the other. You've got consumable fees, where you, the every time you take a scan with the ITER, you're supposed to be using it's a, a brand new tip. So over the course of five years, the the cost of that thirty thousand dollar scanner, if you're doing a I think I ran the numbers at 500 scans a year, which is a pretty conservative number. Uh, yeah, that $30,000 scanner ends up costing you over $50,000. And so you need to look at the true cost, including all consumables, all software fees, um, and even your appliance fees as well, because your appliance fees are going to go up. If you were paying $100 for an expander, you might be now paying $120 per expander because you've got a printing fee uh, and an indirect banding fee, where you might have been doing the banding yourself. And sending the impression with a band in it.
0: Yeah. Thanks. I think that's great for people to have in their mind. And that's kinda of how I think of it. You've got to buy this scanner, it's twenty five or thirty thousand dollars. You've got to pay a couple hundred dollars a month for support. You've got to pay a buck or two on disposables. And then it's ten, like ten dollars an arch approximately for for the printing that might get added onto whatever application you're doing. So you know, people have to think about these costs in in different buckets, not just that sticker price like you mentioned.
1: Right. And it's it's for young orthodontists, and I'm, I'm a young orthodontist, you're a young orthodontist. Uh, I'm lucky in the sense that I joined an established practice. It's a tough question to answer. You know, When do we bring these technologies in? You know, are, are you struggling to get payroll, but you think that this is going to get you a competitive advantage? And no one can answer that question because I think every market is a little bit different. Our practice, we've set up that technology is one of these things that we really enjoy. And so we were early adopters with this. But I think that if I were on my own and I was looking at technologies and I was looking at ways to become more efficient, a scanner would probably be lower on my list of things to implement because it's not going to make me a better orthodontist. It's not going to bring people in the door. People don't come to our practice because we're scanning because half the people around us or more are scanning as well. Um, So I, I don't like to tell anyone that buy a scanner and it's going to increase your patient starts because I just don't think it's true.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't believe that either. It seems that all of, and you've said this, all of the treatments in your office really involve these 3D digital systems. So You've got Invisalign going, you've got SureSmile, you've got the in-office 3D printing. Do you and your practice really believe that this, this digital orthodontic workflow is going to be the norm in the future, or or do you think it's similar to the mini screws where it's going to fade away a little bit?
1: Uh, it's, it, that's a it's an interesting and kind of a loaded question because you, when you look at plastic, moving teeth with plastic, it, clearly Invisalign is not going away. And I think you're going to see at this year's AAO uh, an increase in the number of companies offering plastic alternatives. And next year, even more so as some of these patents begin to expire that Align is holding. Um, so I think that that... Mode of treatment is only going to get more and more prevalent, and uh, as as Dr. Nikazesis uh, was saying on the podcast, which I thought was a phenomenal um, hour of uh, of podcast, you, know, you got to get good. I think anyone who is denying that you you need to learn how to move teeth with plastic is fooling themselves, um, because we do get patients all the time that get directed to us from the, the Invisalign website. Customized appliances, when you look at Sure Smile or Insignia, Harmony, uh, Incognito. In my mind, it's it's really good for us as a group practice. SureSmile has allowed us to take five doctors, make sure we're rowing the boat in the same direction. I could come into a case that's a a year in. We've just got a few more visits to go. I've never met the kid. I've never seen their teeth. I can pull up the plan in SureSmile, and I know exactly where we were, where we're going, and and we have an end goal in sight. For someone who is not in a partnership, SureSmile might not make as much sense because you're seeing that patient every single time, if you've got a strong background in, in finishing cases and bending wires, I think you can do just as good of a job. Uh, my research, my, my master's research was looking at uh, the efficiency and efficacy of SureSmile compared to traditional orthodontics. And uh, I firmly believe that SureSmile is not going to finish your case better. You know, SureSmile is only as good as the person using the tool. I think it does make you more efficient because you don't have to necessarily spend time bending wires chairside. But that efficiency comes at a cost. You know, it's, I think, six to $800 per case based on your volume that you do with them. So that's a lot of money to spend if you're a single doctor, not quite as much when you split that uh, among four or five people.
0: Sure. The next level of technological sophistication, and I know you've explored this in your office, is this in-office 3D printing. And can you briefly explain how this 3D printer works? And I guess for those who might not be familiar and how long it takes to print a model, how much it costs, kind of the basics of in-office 3D printing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, really, when you look at 3D printers, um, I'm going to kind of go try to keep it from getting too granular here. There are four basic types of 3D printers, and I'll try to spend like 50, 20 seconds on each one. Um, the, the first type, the most basic type is called a fused deposition modeling printer. It's the MakerBot. It's relatively inexpensive. It's got a spool of plastic resin that gets heated and drawn out layer by layer. What each printer has in common is that there is a vertical movement. And so if you imagine a Xerox copier, but instead of copying one page, it's adding those pages together to increase the the height of that, uh, that copy. So, uh, fused deposition modeling is something that we really don't use in orthodontics. There are some people that are using them uh, for retainers. They, all the models come out with a stair stepping to them, and so I just don't like the look of a retainer or any kind of appliance made on that type of a printer. Uh, they're readily available and pretty inexpensive compared to the rest of the types of printers. They range in price from a few hundred dollars up to a few thousand dollars. Then you go into stereolithography, which is the original type of printing. This is using a vat of liquid and a, a laser to selectively cure that resin, and each layer it that uh the layer uh, platform drops down or raises depending on the type of printer, and another layer is drawn. Very slow type of, of printing uh process. Form labs is probably the most common one that people would know right now. That's a stereolithography printer. Um and a very good one at that. Uh a variation of stereolithography is digital light processing, DLP. Uh, Envision tech is the, the main player in that. Um, they bought the DLP technology from Texas Instruments, and so instead of drawing an individual layer like s- the stereolithography printers, SLA, they're projecting a single image. Because of that, it can move a lot faster. Each individual layer gets projected. The difference between the two is like drawing out a picture versus stamping out a picture. You can stamp out pages a lot faster than you can draw out pages. Same exact mechanism, it's just the speed is, is very, very different. DLP is significantly faster. Then there's uh, polyjet printing, which is uh, Object Stratasys bought Object, which was an Israeli company. That's very similar to your desktop printing, where you have like, an, uh, an inkjet printer. Little liquid drops of ink are sprayed out, immediately cured by UV light. That happens several hundred times per layer. Uh, and each printer has its, its own... Um, pros and cons, all of them are relatively slow. There's no printer that that can print a model in five minutes at this point in time. Um, When you look at something like the Formlabs printer, if you wanted to print a model or a set of models, it might take you uh, three to five hours. When you go to a DLP type printer, that same uh, set of models might take you 45 minutes. Then you go to a PolyJet printer, and that depends on a lot of different factors, but that will take you anywhere from uh, 45 minutes to an hour and a half, two hours, depending on the type of printer and how it's set up on the build tray. So basically all of them have a a few things in common. A a print medium, what you're printing, vertical movement, um, and then uh, horizontal movement across the build tray.
0: The technology is amazing, and obviously... We're kind of at the inception of this and that you can kind of see out into the future that this really could become a, a pretty powerful uh, thing. Run through for us a little bit the, the workflow for someone who's doing in office printing, you know, I, I, when, I was, when I was in your office, I have jotted down here. You know, you have to do some scanning or acquisition. There's kind of the software manipulation. There's the printing, and then you have to actually fabricate the appliance. But maybe tell us a little bit what's involved in those steps.
1: Right. So it, the, the process is is relatively straightforward yet time consuming. One thing that we didn't know when we got into it, and when I look back at the process of getting into this business, if you will, there's a ton that we didn't know and. If I knew now what I knew knew then what I know now, um, maybe some decisions would have been a little bit different. But you take a scan in the office, and that all that is is a, a three dimensional picture of the teeth. It's not ready to be printed, so you need to take that image and prepare it to go to the printer. Um, you can use a lot of free programs: Mesh Mixer, uh, Model Builder, uh, 3D Builder, which is a free Windows 10 uh, application. Uh, NetFab is a paid uh, program. You can use any of the uh, dental-specific programs, Orchestrate, Orthoanalyzer, excuse me, from 3Shape, and uh, uh, SureSmile will do it for you. Um, But you need to take it from a raw state to a prepared state. If you're just doing retainers, you can do that all with free uh, softwares. It's clunky, it takes several steps, but it can easily be done, uh, and you can easily teach someone to do it because it's the same step over and over. Once... You're prepared for printing, then it goes to onto the printer, and each printer has its own software that gets it uh, onto the printer itself, uh, and then it's really a matter of hitting go, letting the printer do its job over the course of the anywhere from half an hour to four hours. After the print job is completed, there is a post-processing that's involved, and the different types of printers have different types of post-processing, uh, the SLA DLP printers involve an a- uh, alcohol wash and a, a UV light curing. The polyjet printers involve a water uh, jet to wash off a support resin. Um, now you've got models and you go through your fabrication process as you normally would with any kind of stone model. We don't change, uh, we don't use any kind of separating medium. I know a lot of people do. We just make our thermoformed appliances like we would on a stone model. Uh, and we have uh, no issues with getting the, the models off of the, the printed models. Uh, the fit is phenomenal. I think one beauty, beautiful thing about this is that you're taking a pure representation of the teeth in the inter oral scan, and you're printing it at a very high accuracy, high resolution, you know, between 30 and 50 microns, uh, with no distortion from an impression or a pour up, and then you're making a, a thermoformed appliance on that. So that the fit is something that is much nicer. In my mind, with retainers and aligners off of a scan and a print, than off of an alginate impression and a stone model.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's true. I, we've definitely noticed you know the fit being improved uh, when we use 3D printing. Although we don't print it in office, it's all done by the lab. You know, besides accuracy, I guess why would an orthodontist want to put one of these printers in their office, and, as opposed to sending them to? Motor City Labworks or any of the other labs out there. Why would you want one of these things sitting in your office? What are the applications?
1: So, it really, uh, in my mind, the applications come down to how quickly you want that model back. Um, and, and do you want to control the whole process? Obviously, anytime you outsource something, it increases your your, your overhead. Um, whether you're using Motor City Labworks or Specialty, Neolab, any of the, the labs, there's going to be a charge associated with that. And because they have overhead and they've got to pay the bills. You know you might have a model which might cost you three or four dollars to print in your office using a machine that could cost anywhere from four to fifty thousand dollars. you have to remember that um, or you can send it out to someone else and print it for eleven to fifteen dollars a model to me it depends on volume. how much of it are you going to do do you want to be doing this all the time and how quickly of a turnaround do you want do you want to be printing? same day to be delivering the next day? Or can you wait five, six, seven days for a turnaround time from a lab? The people who are implementing these, this is these are all very early adopters. This, the technology is changing so fast. I think that all of us are still trying to learn how to use this in office. We're unique in the sense that we've got uh, two industrial-type printers are down the block from our office, and if I needed to, I can turn something around in under a couple of hours. Um, most people who are getting into printing are getting a Formlabs printer or something similar where it's not quite as fast, and it's a less expensive, less reliable in a, in a, in a sense. A Formlabs printer is a phenomenal printer, but it wasn't really designed for the heavy usage that we're, we put on them as far as the orthodontics goes. So it's a really interesting question, and I don't know if I have a really good answer for it as far as what you want to use. Um, there are people that are doing it, but all these people, I think, are very, very driven to understand the process, and they want to be the the, pe- the first one on the block to do it, to use it as almost a, a competitive advantage among practices in the area, and also open up treatment options that may have not have been available earlier by offering lower-cost aligner systems. That they deliver their patients.
0: Yeah, that's kind of where I where I came away. It seems to me, perhaps, it's a little more bleeding edge than than cutting edge at this stage in the game. You know, I I guess to be fair, I was a little bit of a skeptic on even intraoral scanning, but you know, I bought one three months ago, and I think I'm really coming around on on that technology. On 3D printing, it seems hard for me to understand from an average sized office. Uh, But one thing I think you touched on is, and you just you just mentioned is the possibility of doing some sort of minor tooth movement or in-office aligner therapy. Tell us a little bit about what you see on that front.
1: So uh, you know, all of us know, you know, if there's an orthodontist who doesn't know about Smile Direct Club, they've probably been living under a rock. There is a, a really interesting paradigm shift, I think, going on uh, in the public in the sense that they are seeing this company and, and probably a prolifer- proliferation of other companies that are offering these aligner systems at a significant decrease cost compared to what it would cost to come to our offices. And it, some people are going to be losing patience to this. So far, it hasn't hit us. Smile Direct Club was founded about half an hour away from uh, our offices. They've got a, a showroom in a, the town, just a couple down from one of our offices. In my mind, We're using it for a couple things. Certainly new patients that walk in the door who don't have a lot of money, don't have uh, the resources for full treatment. We explain all that to them, um, and we say, we do have another option for you. It's going to be very limited in in comparison to comprehensive treatment, but I think it's going to achieve your goals. The other thing which is huge for us and probably our most common way to use this in-office aligner system is for relapse patients. It's one of the biggest problems in my mind in orthodontics is some kid comes back from college and says, I didn't really wear my retainers and I don't love the way my teeth look. And you say, historically, we've got a couple of options here. We can put braces back on and no kid that's had braces wants to have braces put back on. We can do Invisalign and I need to cover my overhead. So I got to charge you a, a relatively high fee compared to just putting some brackets on. And most people don't like that idea. Uh, we can use a spring aligner, which uh, I don't think they work terribly well. At least not in my hands, they don't work terribly well. Um, and now we've got the, the next option, which is you know, it's, we're doing it in our office. I'm doing the same process as it would be done by Invisalign, but because I control the whole process, I'm allowed, I am can offer that to you at a significant cost savings compared to Invisalign. Uh, and so what would cost half the price of getting the trays alone i can offer it to you um and it's going to be virtually the same as far as you're concerned
0: yeah i think that would be attractive you know to a lot of people and if you can if you can master this workflow it does seem that there's there's a big advantage there here's another question i have are you aware of anyone that's working on what i think in my mind would be like the holy grail of 3d printing which is printing the aligners directly as opposed to making them off the model is that anywhere on the horizon
1: yeah, I think it's on the horizon. Uh, I, I've seen a prototype, and there are a couple of issues that, that go along with it, and th- th- there are issues on a lot of levels. Um, the, the first issue is biocompatibility. You know, we are healthcare providers. Uh, you know, some some people don't necessarily think about that, but we're, we're working with the uh, biological system, and want to make sure that anything we put in someone's mouth is not going to have any kind of uh, reaction, either immediately or a delayed reaction down the road. And these resins are not known for being terribly healthy in their uncured state. So we want to make sure that anything we put in someone's mouth is going to not cause problems. Now, there are biocompatible materials, but all those materials are pretty darn uh, rigid. Uh, and they're used for bite splints and implant guides. And so uh, now you get into the mechanical properties. So if we, even if we have a, a biomechanically biomechan- uh, compatible Material, the mechanics of that material may not be uh, feasible for aligners because you have to get that down to very thin. You're talking about a millimeter or less of thickness, um, and that's a very difficult task. The next is the aesthetics of it. You have to be able to get this to a very clear material. And at this point in time, I think that that's going to be the biggest issue. I think we've mastered the biocompatibility. We're getting close to mastering the mechanical properties and I think that the aesthetic properties are going to be what uh, holds us back because the prototype I saw, it was quite cloudy. And I was explained that it needs to be polished, but I don't see how you're polishing the inside of an aligner to get it to a really nice shine uh, due to the cuss tips and fossa and everything in the incisor area. I just don't see how it's going to happen.
0: Yeah, I had no idea any of those concerns. So that's that's an interesting answer here. Um any closing thoughts on 3D digital orthodontics, anything we've missed or that's coming on the horizon?
1: Um, I think that there will be a time when all of us have 3D printers in our office. Right now, it's just I don't think it's a really good time unless someone is really interested in getting under the hood of it. I tell people who ask me, what's my first step? Well, the first step is to get a scanner. If you don't have a scanner, then you don't want to have a printer because there's no, nothing to print if you don't have a, a, a scanner. A lot of people ask me, what's the best scanner? To me, the best scanner is whatever works in your, your office and with your staff. The currently available scanners all do a really good job at capturing the images. Uh, there are different prices, different scanning techniques, so go out, try them, bring the reps in, have your staff work on them. Since the doctors are generally not the people doing the scanning, I I'd, I'd let the staff have a really um, large part of that decision because they're the, one that are the ones that are going to be using it every day. The next step to me is to get comfortable with the software. I think that offering an in-house aligner system is a really, really good thing to do for your current patients and future patients. For us, every single one of our patients will finish in what we call an active aligner or active retainer if they need it. If their alignment is perfect, great. We just you give them a retainer, but... Uh, for a little stubborn incisor rotations, it's great to finish them in plastic because that's what plastic does great. Lining up incisors, Invisalign does very, very well. So to offer that to your patients is really good, but it doesn't make sense to me to jump right into the 3D printing until you understand the software side of it. And you can get any of the variety of softwares um, relatively cheaply. You can get involved with SureSmile. You can get Orchestrate. You can actually, I think, get Orchestrate for free if you print through them. The Orthoanalyzer from 3Shape is, is not terribly expensive. It's not inexpensive, but it's not super expensive if you want to use it on, on a good number of patients. And I think in the next year, there are going to be a ton of these companies coming out with new products, uh, and they're just going to be pushing each other to get better and better and more and more user-friendly. And then if they really understand all this and they get the software and they really want to jump into 3D printing, the Formlabs Form 2 printer is a really great starter printer as long as people understand what it's good for. It is a slow printer. Most people get them, get two or three of them eventually because of the speed issue. And it's not necessarily meant to last a long time, but they've turned into almost like TVs. Your TV breaks, you throw it away, and you buy another one. I think printers at some point are going to be like that. It breaks, you toss it, you, you get another one. If you want to jump in head first with a big $80,000 printer, go ahead and do it. But it's it's not like plopping a, a desktop inkjet printer in your office. There's, a, there's weekly maintenance, daily maintenance, monthly maintenance. Um, there's yearly maintenance on it. Uh, and so it's... I advise against it until we know a little more about this industry because it's going to be very different in the next few years, I believe.
0: Yeah. Tell us a little bit about Motor City Labworks. Uh, how did you guys come up with this and what are what are the services that people are using it for?
1: Yeah, so Motor City Labworks, we got into the reason why we got into printed models is we were working with SureSmile, and they came to us and asked us to help develop their aligner module. This was right when I got out of school. None of the guys had much interest in it, so they put it in my lab. Uh, we connected with a, a, a printing lab, or a, really a general dental lab that was doing printing out of Ann Arbor. And um, so we started printing with SureSmile and getting some uh, retainers and aligners and decided, you know what, let's try this for everything. We're going to eliminate impressions for retainers and for appliances. And it got to the point where we were doing so much business with this lab in Ann Arbor, that it just made sense for us to bring in our own printer. Then we kind of went down the printer rabbit hole and said, all right, do we go small scale with something that we can do with ours, or do we go a little bit bigger and set up a, a lab, a commercial lab, that really we can control the whole process. The, the lab itself can help subsidize what we're doing, but the idea of it was really to benefit our colleagues in the sense that we wanted to offer a lower cost option and still maintain a, a very good product. So we, we're a very limited scope in what we do. Uh, we, we are digital lab. We print. We make thermoformed appliances, and, and that's really it. Uh, we make some mouth guards and things like that, but we don't do any acrylic work. We don't do any soldering. Uh, all we do is print and make uh, retainers and aligners and, and things of that nature. So it's allowed us to keep our prices lower because our overhead is lower. We've got a pretty lean operation over there and um, that's that's kind of how it was born. It's grown and we're you know we're growing. we're working with a uh, you know people all over the country uh, at this point in time and it's been really an interesting growth process because Uh, It's all been word of mouth. It's just friends of friends, which has been awesome. And uh, I know a lot of these people we work with I know. And so I've I've fostered relationships with them. And if there are problems, they call me and I say, what's going on? And uh, it's been a a really fun journey that's taken uh, taken us places that we never really intended on it taking us.
0: That's cool, yeah. I think that's a really neat idea. And to be able to offer it to your colleagues when you have so much experience and expertise, I think that's awesome. I'm going to switch gears here. We're going to wrap things up. Is there anything, Christian, in 2017 that you're doing in your personal life, habits, uh, new routines, anything that's really working for you that you want to share with our listeners?
1: Um, Yeah. So um, in September, I don't know if – did you do anything about Peloton Cycles?
0: I've seen it on Facebook like constantly
1: facebook and tv so i've been watching them for a year and a half and uh I, I was a swimmer through college i got i did triathlons after college i've always enjoyed cycling i, I love watching uh, the tour de france in july and so um finally my wife allowed me in september to buy a peloton bike um, one of the things in 2017 that i'm working on is work-life balance uh it's something that i think we all struggle with in orthodontics we're all motivated go-getters and we've got these practices and we, we want to be working you know all the time, but turn it off whenever we can. And so, one of my big issues is, yeah, I just I kind of let things slip. I've got two young kids, one of them who doesn't love to sleep at night, and so you know, things have slipped a little bit. And so, my goal this year is to kind of get back on track. And the Peloton bike was that my first step in that. At the end of 2016, it's allowed me to, to wake up in the morning and get a workout in before I go to work or come home and get a workout in at home and a, a really great workout. Um, I've never done a spin class before. I have really no interest in going to a spin studio, uh, but I've got a group of, of orthodontic. Actually, we all kind of compete with each other, uh, telling each other what rides and classes are really good. So in 2017, yeah, I'm trying to prioritize a little bit more on myself, my personal life, and you know, turning down some opportunities that are coming to me because I, I don't want to look back and say, you know, I missed some really cool years in my kids' lives. So uh, I want to read more books. Uh, I have about eight books that I want to read, and uh, I'm not terribly good at staking with a book. I'll start a book, and then I'll jump to another book. So a goal of mine is to read more books, work out more. Uh, I ran a marathon a couple years ago. I want to get back into half marathons and uh, half Ironman triathlons. So I've got a few things that uh, I'm trying to do um, in addition to growing this practice and obviously uh, working on the lab. So interesting things.
0: Any any book recommendations, any of those books uh, that you're excited about or that you've read recently?
1: I read a, a pretty cool book called Turn the Ship Around. It was by a, a former Navy captain who was put in charge of taking the worst ship in the fleet as far as testing goes. And he was a very accomplished guy, and, and he his job was to turn this ship around and, and turn it into a very high achieving ship. Uh, and I don't remember the, the author of it, but it was a really cool, kind of a motivational book about how to lead, lead by example, and empower people to do things. You know, I think a lot of times uh, we fall into the rut as practice owners, as we are going to tell everyone what to do, not enable people to make their own decisions. And so that was the the, the, kind of the core of the book was enabling his crew to make the right decision and let them fail and let them realize how and why they failed and how to fix it on their own. Because when he left there, he wanted that ship to continue to succeed, not just because he was the leader of the ship. So I thought that that was a a pretty good book, and it's very applicable to a lot of things in life. I think it's applicable to kids and and personal life and practice.
0: I'm adding uh, this Turn the Ship Around to my Amazon wish list here as, as we talk. Christian thank you so much for being on the podcast the information you've given is amazing your grasp of this uh is impressive and uh I I just want to thank you for for spending some time here it's it's been a great experience
1: well thanks for having me on it's uh it's been a pleasure um I know that uh, everyone tells you this uh on the podcast but you've done an amazing job you're bringing great people and uh I'm I'm honored and humbled to, uh, at looking at the list of people you had on here. I'm um, this this little guy who's among giants. And so it's uh, it's been really cool and really fun to, to chat with you.
0: I've had a great time. Thanks a lot, Christian. Have a great night. Thanks, Lance. Hey, guys. I want to thank Christian for being on the show and providing that amazing interview for us. If you want to check out his lab's website, go to MotorCityLabWorks.com. I had a chance to tour their facilities, and it's a pretty impressive operation. I think if you have any questions for Christian, he'd be happy to answer them as well for you. Check us out on iTunes. Leave us a review if you're so inclined. Have a great week. Go Tar Heels! Thank you for listening to the Elevate Orthodontics podcast. For more episodes, subscribe on iTunes or visit our website at elevateorthopodcast.com. Tune in next week for another great episode.